my apologies to those who are listening on the, the, the recording. I forgot to record the very dramatic and excellent reading from chapters 5 and 6 we had a few moments ago. Uh, you'll just have to read it for yourself uh, and appreciate it. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word together. Our Father, lift our eyes uh, from uh, the mundane to the cosmic, from uh, the things that have troubled us this week to your glorious and eternal purposes. Please uh, shine your light on this, your word, that we might see the Lord Jesus and delight in him. And we pray it for your glory. Amen. What I love about this uh, story is uh, how it begins uh, in a, a moment that David is caught up in. I don't know if you noticed that. It's, it's a really good moment, isn't it? Verse 1, just take a look with me. Got to give him rest from all his enemies around him. Safe, secure borders. Uh, the people have gone back home to enjoy the fruits of the land. He's living in a great big palace built for him by the, the finest artisan builders in the world. All is well. And David's living in the here and now. See, and, and that's the problem, really, in this passage, isn't it? He's lost perspective. He sits there, and, and, and he's looking out of his window, and he sees God living in a tent, and, and he says, oh, this, is, this isn't right, I've got to do something about this. And so God has to blow his mind. I don't know if you, what your week has held. I don't know what it is that's been particularly stressful, pressured for you. As I was writing this very sentence, it went something like this. Ah, it's 9.47pm on a Friday night and I still haven't finished writing my sermon for Sunday. <sighs> Better get on with it. And so the present joys and crises of life the persistent problems of living in a fallen world with sickness and death uh, rob us of the sort of perspective that we ought to have, that uh, David ought to have, and that God is deliberately intending to smash into us this morning. In David's case, he can't see much past his panelled walls. He sees out of the window and God's living in a tent in his garden. And he thinks, I've got to do something about this. And so verse 2, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent And because David has lost sight of the cosmic scale of God's throne and his plans, uh, he needs God to step in. That's a lovely sentiment, David. Really it is. But you're so unbelievably wrong. Let me show you why. And so the first of our two points is this this morning. You ain't seen nothing yet. Verses 4 to 17. See, it's as if God says to David, take a look around you, David. You think this is impressive. And to get a grip on what, what this really means, it's helpful for us to remember everything that's happened from the middle of 1 Samuel to this point. Just think, uh, we begin with a question, don't we, verse 5. Why do you think God needs to dwell in a house, David? Uh, if you read verse 7 with a certain amount of irony, don't you? Has God ever pleaded with wringing hands to the leaders of Israel? Why haven't you built me a house of cedar chaps? I'm so cold living in this tent. Please give me a house. David, have you forgotten that the heavens are my throne and the earth is my footstool? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day, he says. In other words, David, I brought up a whole nation into a whole land. I gave them a home. Because that's the sort of God I am. I move nations, David. I give them a home. And will you put me in a hut 
Really? My tent is symbolic, David. I'm not, I'm not trapped. I'm not cold. I'm God, David. You don't build me a house. And having established that he is this sovereign God over nations, he reminds David of his own origins. Did you notice that? And this is where remembering everything that's happened to David since 1 Samuel 16 is really, really helpful. Now then, tell my servant David, verse 8, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. David, you were a stinking shepherd boy, the runt seventh son of a nobody rural farmer. And I have made you king over my people Israel, my special, privileged, covenant nation, and you are the mighty king. I fought for you when you held that stone at Goliath's head. It was me that guided the stone. I've defended you from Saul and from the Philistines. I've put you in this house of cedar. And everything we've seen, hasn't it? From, from Goliath, from his escapes from Saul, from being handed the throne rather than grasping it for himself. His defeat of the Philistines, securing the borders, blessing the people, even getting into the impenetrable city fortress of Jerusalem. The God of the heavenly armies has fought for him every step of the way. David, look how far you've come. Look at this magnificence that I have given to you. The most powerful man in the world of his day. It's all from me, says God. And if we're to grasp the wonder of what's coming next, we have to see the extraordinary reality of what's already happened. It would be as if... uh, when the Queen passes, they popped over here and said, Ash, we want you to be the king. There's nobody, this irrelevant person in the backwaters becoming king over God's mighty people. It's an extraordinary thing to have happened so far, but God in effect is saying, You ain't seen nothing yet, David. You've forgotten the scope of what I'm doing. See, God turns from uh, the, the immediate past to the future. He comes to the future by going right back, right back to Genesis chapter 12, the beginning of the people of Israel. God spoke to Abraham and said, I will make you into a great nation, and here they are uh, in the land. And I will bless you, as indeed they are being blessed. I will make your name great, notice that one, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And now look at what God says to David as he makes a new covenant with him, drawing all those Abrahamic promises into focus and and drilling them down into David's own life. I will make your name great, David. I will provide a place for my people, Israel, here in the land. I will plant them. How? So they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. In other words, those who try to curse them, I will curse. I'll defend your borders. Those who bless them, I will bless. It's not an accident that God is using the same language from these incredibly important promises to Abraham and giving them back to David. I promised to Abraham, and now I am focusing those promises on you, David. But then God goes beyond David, doesn't he? Verse 12, after all, David's going to die. He'll reign for 40 years, but then he will go the way of all flesh. And does that mean the nation loses with him? Is it just here for a season? I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. God says, I'm going to give you a house. It doesn't mean a building, play on words here. 
I'm going to give you a dynasty. I'm going to raise up your offspring to succeed you. Now, obviously, that's n- in theory, that's not a hard thing, is it? Because David's got about 15 sons at this point. <laughs> Although, as it turns out, by the end of the book, most of them have killed each other. But whoever this offspring is, I will establish his kingdom. And then, he's the one who will build a house for my name. It's not wrong for God to live in a great, big, dramatic building, so long as you understand that he's not really contained there. And it gets bigger. I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. A God will have a father-son relationship with this king. So that when he is, God will punish him. But never take away the covenant faithful love that he took away from Saul. There will be this enduring covenant relationship. And so, your house, David, and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. David, I'm giving you an eternal dynasty. Under a mighty king. Just basically the question, who is the king? I mean, obviously it's Solomon, isn't it? Notoriously great king. He was the heir. He built the temple. And yet so much of what's promised here can't be him. After all, he turned away from God. He worshipped the, the nothing deities of his foreign wives and in the end rejected God completely and God tore the kingdom away from him. That's not the father-son relationship we've got described here. And so, in fact, the rest of uh, 1 and 2 Kings, and actually the whole rest of the Bible, is begging the question, where is this king? And as you you follow the the lines of the kings of the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah, it's like looking for a needle in a very large number of haystacks. Uh, With the exception of three decent kings in the south, the rest of the history of Israel is a descent, uh, the decay of the line of kings, And every one of them, uh, they didn't do uh, what David did. It's a refrain. They're compared to David, and then they're all worse. And yet the prophets come back to 2 Samuel 7, and they declare that a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, that's David's dad. From his line will come a new Messiah, a king for the exiled people of God, a great and eternal king, of whom all this will still be true. We're still waiting at the end of the Old Testament for this promise to come true. And so the New Testament opens, doesn't it? The very first thing that we get in the New Testament is uh, the narrative in, uh, in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. Or, or at Mark 1, one, we're looking at Mark in our home groups this year. Uh, the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed king, the son of God. And Jesus fits perfectly, doesn't he? Verse 12. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. The the verb, I will raise up there, is the Old Testament word for resurrection. I think uh, here, perhaps the first readers wouldn't have understood that that was implied, but that's what Peter says in in Acts chapter 2. This is is how he interprets it, that Jesus' resurrection proves that he is David's great son. He's from David's line, we know that. Jesus said, destroy this temple... The temple, actually the the one that came some years after Solomon's temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. What did he mean? He said, when you kill me, on the day you kill me, you destroy the function of this temple. And three days later I will rise again, and I will be the temple. I will be the meeting place of God and man. And of course, that's extended, isn't it, today? Because if we're Christians here, then we are connected to Jesus. We are his body, we are... Uh, the temple of the living God, built together 
as a, as a spiritual temple. So Solomon's temple was, for its own day, the fulfilment of this promise. So the church today is the, temp- the contemporary fulfilment of this promise. We are what God is promising to David 3,000 years ago. Verse 14, though Jesus never sinned, he was flogged by human hands for our sin. And yet, my love will never be taken away from him, God says. And that's right, isn't it? God raised him from the dead and made him king forever. And so his house and his kingdom will endure forever before me. David, if you think your kingdom is glorious, if we think that our present life is wonderful or indeed tragic, if we've been distracted like David, then we need to lift our eyes to what God is really doing. The God whose throne is the heavens and for whom the earth is his footstool. The uncontainably great God was always planning a cosmic salvation, something much wider than the people of Israel, a little territory in the Middle East and a temporary king like David. And if we are Christians, then we are part of that kingdom now. Albeit uh, we're still waiting for so much of it to come, we're still waiting for the glorious eternal fulfilment of the kingdom, but nevertheless we are part of that kingdom now. If we're distracted, then we must remember we ain't seen nothing yet. So much of what God is doing is still to come. How then ought we to respond? And that takes us to our second point. Humbly seek God's precious and certain promises. Verses 18 to 29. We can't really go into the depth I'd like to at this point because time is against us. As we read this, we must remember that David is speaking, first of all, as the Messiah. He's responding as the one who received the promise in the most sort of specific sense. And so when we read these words, in the first place, he's speaking prophetically for Jesus. But nevertheless, I think he also speaks as one longing for the fulfilment of the promises. He speaks as a believer. And so some of this we need to take on for ourselves. Notice, to begin with, that David acknowledges his humble origins. And we could do well to copy him here, couldn't we? Verse 18, who am I? What's my family God's? The answer, nothing. Nobody's. And yet you've brought me this far. So David recognises what God has said. That he's travelled some very great distance in attaining the throne of the kingdom. Of course, Jesus might say the same thing, mightn't he? Born into a humble peasant family in the town of David, Bethlehem, not the city of David, Jerusalem. But he's risen to the eternal throne. And notice we get to join in here, don't we? Verse 23. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth that God went down to redeem. Who is that? Who is Israel today? Israel was a runt nation. They weren't even a nation. They were a people in captivity without their own land. And now look at them. Precious beyond words. The covenant people of God in in the, the lovely fertile land of Israel. The Lord's people. And indeed, verse 24, God has staked his reputation on this people. You've established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And what happens to Israel reflects on God, doesn't it? If he doesn't fulfil his promises to them, then God's own reputation is in the toilet. And of course, that's us, isn't it? And we're the new 
Exodus people, the people not saved from Egypt but from bondage to sin. Not many of us were wise in the world, but God has established us as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's brought them this far, given them very great and precious promises, blessings beyond measure. And they should be amazed. We should be amazed at our privileges today. But his name and his reputation is bound up with the fulfilment of his promises. And so, verse 25, keep forever the promise. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. When God's perfect king is seen to be sitting on the throne eternally, when all eyes see it, then God's name, his reputation and his promises will be vindicated. God is just sitting on the throne now, and yet so many people dismiss him, but they will not dismiss him on that last day. And so David says, bring it about, Lord. Make it happen as you promised. David prays with this incredible boldness, doesn't he? Because God has made promises to him. Verse 28, your covenant is trustworthy on the one hand. You've made these promises uh, to your servant. So what have I got to do? I've got to beg you to do it. It's going to happen. So God, come on. Be pleased to bless the house of your servant. God, you tell the truth. You've made these promises. So I have to believe them. I I can pray on the basis of your promises for you to give me everything that you've said you would. It's an extraordinary thing to pray for. But God has given him permission. I'm going to do it. And so now David seeks the blessing. He claims the promises that God has made. David seeks the kingdom, even though he knows that he has to die before the king will come. Do you notice that? After you've lain down with your fathers, then I will raise up one of your offspring. He knows that he's got to die before it happens, but he still pleads with God to bring it about. Bring about that eternal kingdom. And surely, as Christians, we can pray the same prayer, can't we? Lord God, Jesus is on the throne now. But the kingdom has not yet fully come as it will do. So much is still in the future. And not everybody sees his glory. Lord, bring it about. They despised his name, as Michal did, and put herself outside the covenant. Lord, fulfil your promises to your people. Of course, we need to be clear, don't we, what we're claiming. There's a name-it-and-claim-it kind of theology doing the rounds in the prosperity gospel movement, which says, let's, let's claim the promises of, of health and blessings now. Do you see, that's too weak. It's far too weak. Because God is promising eternal riches. Not some health, but perfect health. No more pain, no more suffering, no more death, Forever. To enjoy the riches of his presence eternally. Every day better than the last. As we grow to know God better. As we rejoice to spend time together celebrating our God. The prosperity gospel guys are just like David, aren't they? Distracted by the here and now. Wanting it all now. So focused with their eyes blinkered. Looking at the material world around them. And forgetting that God is doing something cosmic. He's doing something far, far greater. We mustn't be preoccupied with the here and now. For God is promising eternal blessings. A perfect world which awaits when Jesus returns and he is coming. And those are the promises we can name and claim. We must pray. We must own the promises here given to David. 
We must lift our eyes from this world, whether it's a happy season or a sad season for us. We lift our eyes beyond that to the glory that is to come. When we look back at God's covenant faithfulness, generation after generation, when we see his glory in rescuing the people from Egypt or us from our slavery to sin, when we see him take David or Jesus and sit them on their thrones from their humble origins, we should absolutely praise God for evidence after evidence of his covenant faithfulness. But we must remember that this, this is just a foretaste. It's just the, the, the little, uh, you know, the, the start of the appetizer. We've still got 15 courses to come. The true and breathtaking majesty of the kingdom is awaiting us. And so we must pray fervently, wholeheartedly, your kingdom come. We must plead with God to fulfil his promises. To bring an end to war, to pain, to suffering, to tears and to death. And to bring in the, the eternal reign of the eternal king for his people. The kingdom of Jesus forever. Why don't we lift our eyes and pray. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy. And you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Heavenly Father, you've made these promises to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his people, his household forever. And Lord, we, we long to receive all of the blessings that are ours. Send the Lord Jesus back soon. Bring us hope that we might enjoy all of your privileges uh, forever. In Jesus' name, Amen.